0: If you have your Bibles, please find the book of Micah. Find chapter 5. Now, it's a hard book to find. It's only a few pages. So, if you need to use your table of contents, please do. There's no shame. There's no Bible quiz or anything like that to determine who's in and who's out. So, Micah chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, this, this um, passage that Michelle read to us... This was a prophecy concerning Jesus that was given about 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. Let's start in Micah chapter 5 verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, Depending on what version of the Bible you have, the first part of that verse might be translated differently from the way I read it. That just means yours is wrong and mine is right. Um, no. it's, a, it's a very tricky verse to translate precisely, but the overall meaning is clear. This is a humiliating scene. Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. So here we find that the capital of a nation is under attack and our leaders are being treated shamefully. Now look, for a leader of a nation, a king, to be struck on the cheek, this is this is humiliation. This is a total domination. This is absolutely embarrassing. It's it it shows that you're weak and you're defeated. Now there's a huge backstory. To understand why that's happening and and everything that's going on in this verse. But the gist of it is this. Israel, the nation of Israel, has been consistently defiant and rebellious against God. So God, in, in return, because Israel has been defying God, in return for that, God is doing to Israel what he told Israel he would do to her If she rebelled. He's giving Israel up to her enemies. He's pulling back his protection. Now that's the scene. The setting. But look at verse 2. The first word of verse 2 is. But. But you. O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Who are too little. To be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. So here we find the creator God of the universe um, has made this once and for all promise to Israel. This irrevocable promise that he is going to, through Israel, once and for all, heal the universe. Heal the world. And he keeps his word. He, he's going to provide the remedy to all of the problems in this world. To all of the problems in your life. In your family's life. To all of the problems between nations. Some of these songs we sang. Bind all people's hearts in one. I mean these deep problems that are systemic and structural. And problems that are personal. God's made this astonishing promise. Through Israel he's going to fix all of that. Now, now that's amazing. And notice what his solution is. It's a person. It's a ruler. It says in that verse, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Even before Israel existed, this ruler existed. His origin predates Israel. And his origin predates the universe. He he did not begin to be when he was born in Bethlehem. He already existed. He was before all of the ages. Now, this is kind of a mind trip. I mean, we're in, we're in myth land here, right? I mean, if you, if you weren't absolutely convinced of this stuff, you, you would realize how astonishing the things are, I'm, I'm saying and reading right now. Now, look at verse 3. Well, well, back up one more thing from verse 2. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Here's another crazy thing. The creator God of the universe has not only picked a nation and through this nation that right now is being totally dominated, through this nation, he's going to heal all the problems of the world. But this ruler that pre-exists the ages is going to come from Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem didn't even register as a dot on the map. Sort of like Elkton, right? You know how in... Sophisticated, urbane, cosmopolitan Harrisonburg. People think of Elkton as country. You just ramp that up times ten. That's what the cosmopolitans thought of Bethlehem. These were the hicks. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to even be named... Verse 3, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, because Israel has violated their covenant with God and belligerently betrayed their relationship with God, God is going to give them up. He's going to turn them over and give them up. He's going to give them over because of their apostasy. He's going to give them over to their enemies. You see, hypocrites should never think that they will escape punishment. But there will come a day when God's once-for-all solution happens. Again, notice what this solution, the form it takes. Until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. God's solution to the problems of the universe, whether they are natural Hurricanes, tornadoes, whether they are biological, infertility, cancer, or whether they are some personal moral breakdown. God's solution is a person, a human being. And when he's born, look at the end of verse 3, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Now we don't have time to go into all of this. This is a very dense Statement full of the backstory. But it's enough for this morning to point out that the return here is a return to the will of God. It's the hearts of the people being converted. It's God's solution is going to bring people back into a good relationship with Himself. Now, verse 4 And He, this one that's born, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Here we see that God's solution to the brokenness of the world is the good shepherd. This is God's solution. And how much power will this shepherd have? Well, the one creator God. Look where it says, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. We think of Lord as a synonym for God, as a generic identity of, of a higher power. But if, depending on your Bibles, that word Lord might be in smaller caps. Do Any of your Bibles have that? It's because this is actually the word Yahweh, which is the name of Israel's God, which is The God that the Bible claims to be the only God. The Bible claims the only God has a name. He is particular. He's not generic. He's not a higher power. He is the creator God we learn about in the scriptures. And this shepherd will have all of the power of that God. All of the power that in chapter 1 of Genesis spun the world into existence. All of the power that breathed life in the humans, this shepherd will have that power. And then the end of verse 4, And they will dwell secure, for now he will be great to the ends of the earth. Now think about in contrast to the current ruler of Israel who is being struck on the cheek in this moment, who is being dominated, who is being totally Embarrassed and humiliated. In contrast to that ruler, the Messiah, because of his strength, his followers will be secure. They won't be in a place where they're being, their ruler is being overwhelmed. In verse 5, and he shall be their peace. Again, notice the solution is a person. He shall be, in the word for peace there... It's an English, peace. In Hebrew, this was originally written in Hebrew, is shalom. Now, it's a much, much thicker word than our English word for peace. In English, we think of peace as the absence of conflict. But in Hebrew, the word shalom, it's like a giant trunk, a giant suitcase. And it carries around a lot of meaning. It means flourishing and delight in all of the relationships that constitute your existence. So flourishing and delight in your relationship to God, in relationship to yourself, in relationship to the creation, in relationship to others. This is an incredible image. He will be their peace. This Messiah, this promised once and for all solution, He Himself will be shalom that's offered to us. Peace, delight, flourishing with our fellow humans, with creation, with ourselves, with God. Who wouldn't want this? And and especially a group of people who in that moment, their ruler is being struck on the cheek. Who wouldn't want that? This is a group of people who are not flourishing, who are not at peace. They're being ravaged by their enemies. And they are being offered shalom. But how? How do you get from here to there? How do you get from absolute chaos and turmoil and drowning in the sea of your own rebelliousness, of your own wickedness, of your own sin? How do you get from that to receiving the peace of the creator God of the universe? We'll jump forward 700 years or 82 pages, however many pages in your Bible, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, 700 years later, this gospel passage that we heard read. So, Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. There's so much going on here, but it's helpful to know that the heart of the passage, the the beating heart of, of this whole long, wonderful scene is verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now look, like Israel, all of us are chumps. We're rebellious. And not only do we mess up, we are defiantly steadfast in our rebellion. I mean, how many of you, like me, every week we kneel here, before God, and you find yourself confessing the same sins. Kneeling before God, saying, have mercy on me. For those of you who did, went to the Café Veritas a week or so ago, and we watched that film of the Rwandan genocide, and there's that scene, right? Where the man who has slaughtered the lady's entire family Is looking at the lady and she's ravaging him in her anger and her accusations, and he's just saying over and over, Have mercy. Have mercy on me. He can't make up for it, right? He can't say, I'm sorry enough to constitute he gets what, right? All he can say is, Mercy. And that's us every week kneeling here before God, have mercy. We're all like Israel. We sin in our thoughts and our words and our deeds, in the things we've done and in the things we've left undone. We have not loved God with our whole heart. We do not love our neighbors as ourselves. And through Christ, through this one, God's mercy is offered to us. Through this person. See, that's the solution. The solution isn't a system. The solution is a person. It's Jesus Christ. This reality, it sits right at the heart of this fascinating exchange between Mary and her Aunt Elizabeth. Who can receive the peace, the shalom that God promised through His mighty Messiah? The peace that we saw promised back in Micah 700 years before. Who can receive it? The person who fears God. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter if you're in this Christian tradition or in that Christian tradition. It is the person who fears God. This means the person who is humble and meek. That's why it is so important that you use your body in worship because sometimes your body is the best tool you have to get your soul in shape. You see, we are whole beings, connected body and soul. So we kneel, and with our children, when we have devotions at night, we have our children kneel many times, most of the time. Why? Because we know that we we can't always get through to them. But if we can get them to use their body, your body shapes your soul. Let me show you how it plays out in the passage this morning. Look at chapter 2, Luke chapter... um, 1, I'm sorry, not chapter... Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, in Judah. So Mary has just learned from the angel Gabriel that she will give birth to Jesus the Messiah, this once and for all longed-for ruler. So she gets up and she hurries 70 miles, about 70 miles, from where she lived to the town where her aunt lives, where Elizabeth lives. Now before we go on, you need to know a little bit about the difference between our cultures and her culture, okay? So this is an ancient Middle Eastern peasant culture. And in that culture, there were significant issues of honor and shame. Um, In that culture, the way you greeted each other there were honor-shame issues involved. And by the way, from the deep south where I'm from, my mother has lots of honor-shame issues around greetings. She still has that, right? And yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. In some parts of our country, that is a very important rule that says things about your character, right? In other parts of our country, it doesn't. So in this culture, when two people encountered one another... The whole encounter was programmed based on status. The person of lower status greeted the person of higher status, one. And two, the person of lower status moved physically toward the person of higher status. So the person of higher status stood still and received the greeting. The person of lower status went toward that higher status status. Person. You can kind of see this in movies you've seen where there's a king, right? And he sits on his throne. And what do the visitors do? They come into the room to him. He doesn't move. They move toward him. And then they greet him. All right? So these are honor-shame issues. Now, from the first chapter of Luke, it is clear that Elizabeth is superior to Mary for three reasons. Number one, Elizabeth, we learn earlier in the chapter, is a daughter of Aaron. Now, this is like being a Kennedy, you know, um, or a Windsor, or just just pick your country. This is like being part of the royal family, okay? Secondly, she's the wife of a priest, and this is a position of great status in that culture. And third, she is older than Mary. On all three counts. Elizabeth, you already know when you're reading this as good literature, by the time you get to this scene, you already know that Elizabeth has greater status than Mary. In fact, when Mary's introduced, you don't find out anything about her other than her virginity. Joseph, we find out things about his status, but over and over the passage indicates Mary has no status. She's an unwed pregnant person who doesn't come from a family of names. Now, to us, that that doesn't measure up. But to them, you've got to know this is huge. There's an incredible power disparity. So, in verse 40, Mary entered the house of Elizabeth and greeted her. Now, it kind of feels a little bit weird reading it in English. She She just walks right into her house. But again, Luke is writing in a culture that understands all the status cues. And what Luke is indicating is that Mary did the right thing. But then, something weird happens. In verse 42, all of this status, all of this honor-shame stuff, gets completely exploded. Elizabeth greets Mary. And she, Elizabeth, exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, this breaks all of the rules in that culture for honor and shame. Elizabeth is superior, but in this greeting, Elizabeth clearly places herself in the servant's role. She's bestowing honor on this guest that has no status. She recognizes her as the mother of my Lord, blessed among women. The table's have been completely turned. Now the word that Elizabeth uses for blessed, she's, originally this was written in Greek, there were a number of different words available in Greek for this bless, But the word that Elizabeth uses is a very precise particular word. It's used with your superior in recognition of their advanced status. This is unheard of. And then in verse 43, she takes it a step forward. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should... What does it say? Come to me. You see what she's doing? She's saying, this is all wrong. You shouldn't have been coming to me. You shouldn't have been greeting me. There is something that has occurred in the fabric of the universe that has just changed all of our dynamics. You should not have come to me. I should have gone to you. Blessed are you. Now notice she submits herself not only to Mary, but to an unborn baby. The mother of who? My Lord. Here is this incredibly elegant, dignified southern belle. Who is saying everything's wrong here. Now again. She's got this attitude. That she's not worthy to be visited. This illustrates for us. What Mary sings about. We'll look at more closely in a moment. In verse 50. Who has access to God? Who receives God's peace? Those. Who fear God. Not the powerful. That doesn't get you in. Not some certain ethnic group. That doesn't get you in. Elizabeth shows us that a right relationship with God. Is not a casual affair. As if God were some friendly neighbor. Right? To have a relationship with God. It calls for this deep respect. After all, He is the creator of the universe. He's responsible for you and me even existing in the first place. Listen to how it's put in another part of the Bible in Isaiah's book. This is the one to whom I will look. Now the I here is God. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So my question for you is, do you? I mean, do you really bow down on Sundays? Humbly before your Creator. And not just on Sunday, but whenever you open Scripture to read it. Who can receive Christ and his kingdom? Who can receive shalom from the Creator? The person who is humble and meek. Who receives mercy from God? Who can receive forgiveness for their sins? The person who is humble and meek. In whose heart will Christ be birthed anew this Christmas? I mean, who's going to actually have Christmas? Instead of some sentimentalized, hallmark moment of chaos. Who's going to actually receive the Christ? The humble, the meek person who really does fear God and tremble before God. But it's not only Elizabeth that shows us this. Look at the song, this song of Mary. Does anybody know what it's called? The Magnificat, that's right. And Mary said, verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord, my my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on what? The humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Some people, either because of what they've suffered or what they've achieved, develop an attitude that things are owed to them. And you can get into this I'm owed attitude either by going through suffering and constantly rehearsing your victim status or through your achievements that make you have more money or more power or more education or whatever than other people. And some of us, we get into that way of living and we begin to treat God as if He were a friend. ...or a neighbor to be joked with, negotiated with, rather than the almighty God. And Mary understands the difference and recognizes the honor given to her to have God actively involved in her life. And it is this sense of, hey, wow, what a privilege that that causes Mary to kind of just overflow in this waterfall... Of gratitude and thanksgiving and praise. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. God does powerful things for the powerful. For the humble. The meek. For those who fear him. In fact, it's not too strong of a statement to say that meekness and humility and fearing God is a prerequisite for blessing from God. Drop down to verse 51. He who has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Look, there are two groups of people in this verse, in these passages, these verses. There's the proud and there's the humble or the meek and those who fear God. Now, to the humble, in this passage, what does God look like? What face of God do they experience? God is Savior. But to the proud, in this passage, same God is a fierce warrior. Which face of God do you want? I mean, you're going to get one or the other. And it's the same God. To the proud... These are people who are self-confident. They trust in their own strength. They they are not dependent on God. They, They have this attitude that God helps those who help themselves. They don't need God's assistance. Then God is a fierce warrior to them. In verses 52 and in 53, the proud, look at the way they're characterized. They are mighty and they are rich. In contrast to the humble... And the needy, if we were to keep reading in Luke's gospel, we would learn that he teases out this theme all the way through his gospel in a more powerful way than any of the other gospel writers. In Luke's gospel, the proud are people who grab and grasp for respect, for social standing for social status, for positions of honor. They are people who exclude those who are less fortunate and socially unacceptable. They exclude them from their circles. They don't invite them to their parties. They, these are the people in Luke's gospel who enjoy the power that accompanies privilege. They're deluded. They're deceived by their own wealth and their status into thinking that they are in control of their life. But look how God, this fierce warrior, interacts with these people. Verse 51, He scatters them. Verse 52, He brings down the powerful. Verse 53, He sends the rich away empty. But over against the proud... Notice how Mary's song places the lowly and the hungry. In verse 52, he lifts up the humble. In verse 53, he fills the hungry with good things. In verse 54, he helps and shows mercy to his servants. I mean, which one are you? Don't even think about which one you are before God. The best way to figure that out is which one are you before other people? I mean, there's really not any difference. You can't be proud toward a street person and be humble before God. Hypocrites will not escape the judgment of God. Notice what Mary says in verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Look, God has always acted this way. That's what she's saying. She's saying this is not new. This, God has always been this way. He has always had this value system. Remember Micah five verse two. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Jerusalem, of Judah. Look, this is who God chooses. This is His character. He's always been this way. Christ was not born in the capital. I mean, if we had, if I'd been preaching on the paragraph on the passage before this, where the Annunciation is made, the first annunciation of Luke's gospel is to a priest, right? Elizabeth's husband, right? Status in the capital. And he doesn't, he's obstinate. He doesn't believe God, right? He resists what God is doing. And then the angel, it says very interestingly, the angel traveled, God sent the angel way out to the boondocks to this 13-year-old girl who has no status, and she says, Let it be unto me. I mean, Luke, the author of this gospel, is trying to say Look, God is doing something, and it's not in the capital, it's not in the place of strength. This is the final week of the season we call Advent. This is the season where we prepare to celebrate and to receive again. The birth of Christ. Have you done it? Have you gone on the advent journey? Or have you been so busy with all that is required of you in this season that you haven't taken time out to humble yourself before God? Look at verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. Now, this is the second time that Elizabeth pronounces a blessing for Mary. Right? The first time was in verse 42. Remember, she switched status. Now, there are two key changes in the second blessing. The first blessing in 42. The second one in 45. First of all, remember that I told you the word Elizabeth used for blessed in verse 42 that it's a special word for blessing. It's a word used to recognize somebody's superior status. In verse 45, Elizabeth uses a different word. She uses the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the persecuted. That's a different word for blessed. Now, what what Elizabeth is doing here is she's using a word, this idea that God's blessing is available to those who receive it with humility. I'll come back to that in a minute. The second difference is this. In verse 42, Elizabeth uses the second person. Blessed are, second person, singular, you among women, right? But in verse 45... Which does, what what um, does she use? Blessed is she. She switches to third person. Now, by doing this, it's really an incredible liter- literary work here. What Mary has done is she's opened up the blessing from the particular... What Elizabeth has done is she's opened up the blessing from the particular individual of Mary to a more generic Pronoun, she. Blessed is the one. What she's done is, Elizabeth has recognized that the way God moved into Mary's life is available to all. She's opened it up for you and me, the reader. And, and then she uses a different word for blessed to say it's not that the blessing you get is that you get some advanced status. No, Mary got that. Nobody else is going to get that, right? I mean, you're not carrying the Christ in your womb. But you get blessing. It's the blessing that Jesus offered the crowds. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. In this sense, it's, it's this blessing that you can be a recipient of God's gift of redemption. Back in Micah chapter 5, I said, how do we get the shalom? Here it is. Through Christ. See, Mary's through Elizabeth's words, God is inviting you and me to receive Christ. But to do this, you must humble yourself. Now, Christ is near. Will you humble yourself? <laughs> One of the things I love about our Eucharist, that we'll, uh, Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper, whatever you want to that we're going to do in a minute, is that you don't sit there and wait for Him to come to you. But you see, if you will humble yourself, Christ will give Himself. If you would come to Him, He will give Himself to you. And you will be a recipient of His grace. Do you have the humility, like Mary, to believe His Word? Some of us don't believe the Word of God. Scripture for the reason of pride. Now, I'm not saying that's everybody's gig, but some of us it's just pride that is keeping you back. Do you have the humility of gratitude and thanksgiving, thanksgiving to rejoice in Christ? Do you have the humility to repent and to say I am wrong and I will change my ways? Now in just a few days Christmas will come. And you have this chance between now and then one week left. To take time to prepare yourself, to ask Christ to be born in your heart all over again. Humble yourself before Him by believing in Jesus and thanking Him and rejoicing in Him and repenting of your sins. And if you do this, guess what? He will be your shalom. He will be your peace. Open your heart to Christ. And the peace of Christ will come into your heart. Let's pray.